Hello and welcome to the Man City Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Pollard, and on this instalment, I'm going to be speaking to Paul and Joanne Lake. Paul Lake, of course, is one of the finest academy graduates this club has ever produced, but his career was cut short by a succession of cruel injuries. It led to a period of deep depression, which was documented in the book he co-wrote with his wife, Jo, which went on to become a Times bestseller. I wanted to get a full picture of Paul's life and career, and I also wanted to understand the process by which the book was written, a book that ended up transcending football circles. We started, though, by discussing Paul's route into the game and how his association with Manchester City began. When I came into into City uh, as uh, an under-9, under uh, playing for um, one of their teams that they're... They used to play in grass, grassroots. They used to have teams, different teams, and and they were called other you know, sort of names such as Blue Star and Pegasus and all these strange, wonderful uh, names. But I'd kind of got to the stage where I was playing with better players, and each time you felt like you were going from being a, a big fish in a little pond to the complete opposite. And yet I've managed to, as I say, keep swimming. You know, even against the tide at times, and still managed to um, be seen as one of the better players. Um, I was playing alongside the likes of Steve Redmond, who was uh, a captain before I actually became captain and a, a good friend and, uh, and a very strong teammate. Uh, Andy Hinchcliffe, uh, we, I was playing with Andy from being sort of 12 years of age. Uh, Ian Brightwell came later, so I was playing with some very talented players. I got to the stage where I was playing regularly in the first team. Um, Got my own house, just about sorted out, uh, playing, playing really, really well. Uh, just been made captain. I was in the richest vein of form I've been in. I felt as though I could do anything with the ball. I was wasn't I wasn't fearful, and it was it was it's a strange really. It wasn't complacency, but I wasn't feared of any opposition, any player, or any position. I felt as though I could be the best player in that position in front of all my teammates and any of the first team guys. I I felt that you put me there, I'll be better than you, and I was determined to be that kind of a player. So a third game into the season against Aston Villa, the England managers come specifically to watch me play and that's when my injury struck. So this is the 1990-91 season, isn't it? So just, just for context, England have obviously just been to the World Cup. The manager's changed hands, Graham Taylor's come in. During that handover period between Bobby Robson and Graham Taylor, Bobby Robson has said to Graham Taylor that you were perhaps a fantastic candidate to be the next captain. And then the third game in, you play in Aston Villa and you go down and that's when the problems start. So it was a cruciate knee ligament problem, which is, the, that's the one, isn't it, that all footballers fear the most. So what happened and, and how did it feel and, and, and things like that? Well, it's ironic really, isn't it? It was so long ago, but some things are vivid and, and that certainly is the case. Um, I, I can see it in my head very clearly now, even just speaking to you. I know exactly what what happened, and, and basically a ball got played into a centre forward, a guy called Tony Cascarino, who's quite often on the radio. He's on Talksport quite quite a lot these days. I was marking Tony, nothing to do with him. He miscontrolled it. The ball bounced up in the air. I poked it away from him, and I, as my foot landed, I went to follow the play. My foot got stuck in the in the main road turf, and with my whole body rotated, and my, my my foot stayed in the same position. And I just heard a very deep thud followed by a horrific sharp pain and then I was you know incapacitated on the floor lying there and for that couple of moments it was just a really sharp horrible pain and just completely taken over by by fear you know when you have that fight flight of kind of flea moment you know it's one of those where I just was in shock 
because I didn't know what to, what to do, what how to deal with it. Um, my legs went into spasm, and and I knew something was seriously wrong at that moment. And the cruciate ligament it basically stops your femur from moving against your your tibia, your shin bone. So if you imagine sprinting towards a wall and then you stop, then obviously as you stop, the femur stops and the tibia then stops. Well, with no cruciate ligament, that keeps going that way. So it stretches all the rest of the tissues that are in there mm -hmm. and gives it a good old grind and a, a jerk out of, out of place almost. And it causes the knee to swell up. And so we knew it was serious, but the medical staff at the time didn't know just how serious it was. Yeah, I was going to say the, the, the initial prognosis was that this would be maybe not a minor problem, but certainly not a major issue and, and maybe six weeks out would, would do the trick. What, what, what was that next phase of, the, of, of this problem? Well, it was just a simple case of, of letting the swelling supposedly settle down. Um, lots of ice, packing the knee, resting, doing nothing at all. And, and um, it, was, it was a case of, of the kind of medical uh, team at the time, um, really inexperienced with, with serious knee problems, or with any kind of serious injury to mention, there was inexperience there. And, and it would be a case of um, getting the, the injury fixed as best it can, and then get straight out there again with really poor preparation, you know, with, with no ability to be able to make, you know, that, that injury site safe and controlled and stable and robust enough to go back into any kind of practice. Now it was it kind of missed that huge phase of your recovery, which was vital to that process. And unbeknownst to players at the time, and myself included, I didn't know what that was supposed to look like. So you're guided by the people at the helm at the time. And uh, I went from A almost to F and then straight out there. And so six weeks of just resting, icing, getting the swelling down, trying to get some range of movement back, pretty basic stuff. And then from that, getting straight out onto the pitches, doing some running and then doing twisting and turning. And within six weeks of, of doing practically very little to doing some quite high-tech movements um, and then not being able to control those movements and a series of breaking down to the extent where it pretty much re-ruptured. Um, whatever was left in there would completely then uh, been, been ruptured. And uh, it was actually doing some doing some running, uh, I, I, can, I can see it now, and it, it, was, it was humiliating as well because I felt there was something seriously wrong, I wasn't confident, and I was told, you just gotta go for it and, and see how you manage. And being on the Manchester University playing fields and lots of mud there, and doing running, and then as soon as you're changing direction, falling flat on your face, not being able to control that. I mean, in mud as well, and just, just an awful, awful experiences. And then we knew that um, this was um, it was too far gone and uh, it had to go under the knife, as they say. The surgery happened in Manchester yeah. and that was another issue was the fact that um, there was um, there's lots of very experienced people in the game who had you know, the correct qualifications and the experience and that was a phone call away to get the advice on who we should go and see. But because someone was based in Manchester, it was round the corner, you know, it would go under the radar there was a new kid on the block in terms of the of the um, the procedure that that was taking place, and that idea that that I would be back quicker, um, and this was the best person to go to, and yet when I was at Lillyshaw, because I had to do my rehabilitation there because the treatment that was available at City at the time it, it wasn't enough, and also didn't have the resources and the manpower to deal with someone with a serious injury like mine, because there was one uh, sports therapist looking after probably 30, 40 players. You know, so when people talk about Peter Swales, that's his underinvestment, and I blame him for, because he did all that on a, on a on the cheap, and and that's how I was made to feel. 
So when people talk, I mean, people have got different opinions about Peter Swells. That's one of the reasons why I have this. I I, dis, I despise the man at the time, and um, you know he's he's gone now, and I know that he loves City. But in terms of how he treated me, um, that was a huge part of the problem. Was how he disrespected that huge and important part of the football club, and it was all around being a cheapskate and saving money. So that's my feeling towards that. I saw a guy based in Manchester with no real experience to the level that was required. Uh, Little Shaw physiotherapists were amazed that no one gave them a call to say who would they recommend because they'd seen players over the last 10 years come into the environment to say, look, we've seen players come and go, top, top players who play for the countries, who have seen, had those same, same injury, maybe slightly worse than mine. And who have they gone to see and what's that success rate been like? Didn't it didn't even happen, and so much so that whilst I was at Lillishaw doing the rehabilitation, because they'd never seen the procedure, they had to be guided by the consultant for the rehabilitation, who, in that person's wisdom, had me back on the pitches rotating just inside three months because of the idea that I would be the first person back inside five six months. It'd be a great reputational buzz for that individual, and I'd be back playing for the team at the end of the season. And first day at Lillyshaw, on the pitches, doing some simple ball work, played my foot to land and passed the ball again, put my weight through it, ruptured again. And this is all the time being guided by people who you think have got their, the, the best intentions for you granted, but with such um, poor support and, and a lack of knowledge and, and a lack of care. And my looking back emotionally and psychologically, I was basically as... As as much as I'd worked hard, I got my quad strong. You know, I was I was you know I was I was bench pressing something like a hundred and hundred and thirty kilograms. You know, I was as strong as an ox, but emotionally I was as weak as a kitten because that's how I was made to feel. And and every time that fear came back, that fear came back and stayed for longer and was more devastating each time. I didn't know who to trust, who to turn to. You know, I was going back to see the same consultant again, and I had no control over that. And all the time, you know, the um, the Lillishaw physiotherapists were just surprised at, at, at where, where things were heading. And they felt that because of the nature of the injury and the fact that when I came back again the second time, they weren't overly happy with it, but felt it was the best place it was going to be in considering. And lo and behold, first day back in pre-season, uh, playing with the guys, they clapped me, welcomed me back in, uh, went to close down somebody on the left-hand side of the pitch. And as I went to block the shot and landed, Ruptured again. Mm. I mean, anybody not familiar with this story, it does actually get worse than this. But Joe, when you hear Paul talking about that kind of uh, neglect and mismanagement, how, how does that make you feel when you hear that? Well, I'm a, I'm a City fan from a very young age. I mean, I started watching the Blues when I was about six years old and I followed Paul's story, obviously, long before I, I met him. Um, and I remember being a student in Liverpool and listening to the Middlesbrough game on the radio and just being absolutely heartbroken, like most fans. You know, the, that purple patch of the mid-80s was when I probably went to City the most. And the likes of Paul and Ian Brightwell, Steve Redmond, you know, they were heroes to me, and I'd always followed Paul's story. Um, I'd always been a bit of a, a big fan of Ian Brightwell's, to be fair. And it was my dad that, that he was the big Paul Lake fan, mm. a huge Paul Lake fan, and he would spot him and say, listen, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to make it. He's got something special. So, yeah, when I, I followed his story and was as gutted as any other City fan 
when it didn't turn out the way it should have done. So tell me then about going to America to try and eventually get this sorted. You were advised by a couple of players who had maybe encountered the same problem, John Salarco being one of them, and you were going to LA, is that right? That's right, yeah. Well, it was it was ironic because it was Peter Reid. P- Peter Reid had, had had a bad injury himself and he felt that I'd been poorly treated and wanted to try and take some semblance of control of the situation to try and help me and see if he could resurrect my career as, as best he could. So... Um, but then having the conversations with, again, Peter Swales, he wasn't prepared to um, release the money to send me over to America. The fact that it was in, it was going to be covered by the insurance was one thing, but actually the flights there and back, these types of things, he wasn't prepared to put his hand in his pocket because he thought I was a, a, waste, a, a waste of space now and it was a, it was a, I was a lost cause. And, and treating someone who's also a City fan that had been there all their lives and, and given everything to their, to their club, on peanuts, by the way, on a YTS money, and then my professional contract. It was in the book, actually, how comical it was, and even the bonus scheme for winning the FA Youth Cup final was just ridiculous. It was £25 a win, you know? And those types of things, just a cheapskate, an utter cheapskate in my in my eyes. And the more, you can hear, probably hear the venom. I need to calm myself <laughs> down when I'm speaking about him because I have got no time for that guy. And it, it's awful that if, you know, he's... he's Family, wider family, get upset by that. But you know, this is how I was made to feel. And this is how I felt. And well, I'm just you honest. confronted it. You, you confronted him at Main Road, didn't you? Which we well, covered in the book. I, yeah, I did. I had. A, I, I actually had a, a, a set two with him. I was, and it was. It was even the way it was positioned. I was. I'd. <laughs> it was funny. I'd um, come. I came into the club to pick up some mail, and uh, Helen the Bell would always be in and around. And she'd invite herself to get a lift home. <laughs> so I'd actually come to um, the reception uh, and uh, spoken to one of the players and looked back and Helen sat in the passenger seat saying, are you going past the MRI? <laughs> so I took her to the MRI, dropped her off and came back to get my mail to do that. So it was like a taxi, really. Taxi for Helen. Um, <laughs> put the bell in the boot. Well, yeah, it's too big, that, um, to fit in the front seat. And, um, you know, so did that, came back up the stairs and, and uh, he was on his way down the stairs. Always managed to get pushing where he was above you. You know, like when I signed my contract, he made sure that I was in the um, uh, the, the child's chair and he had his feet on the uh, on the table. So he always managed to get that dynamic just right. So, you know, those Cuban heels shone beautifully in the, in the, in the light. Uh, and um, basically said that I did a piece in, the, in, in one of the papers. I've been made to feel like a piece of meat just hung out in an abattoir. No support. Whenever I came into reception, that person would walk past me and completely ignore me. Wouldn't say good morning, hello, how are you feeling, how are you doing, nothing. Just completely ignore you. And one or two of the staff would do the same. Not the coaching staff, but certainly other members of staff. And, and it was, it was demoralising for a young man who didn't know what to, what to do with himself. Had not got no life skills to be able to know how to, how to behave in that situation. And just left to my own devices. Uh, didn't have a gym to train in, other Peter Swales didn't invest in a gym at all. So I had to go to the Galleon gym in Cheadle to do my own rehabilitation. So I'd clock in like I was in a warehouse, just clock in, then go out by myself, do my own rehabilitation, then come back to the club, get some ice, almost be seen, and then go. And it was literally Groundhog Day. Getting back to America, it was humiliating because he'd written me off, wouldn't wouldn't pay for me to go over there and it was the players that clubbed together to pay for the flights and it wasn't that you know I was completely on my ass. but the point it was it was the principle of it 
and that's what Premier League did. But can you imagine that happening now? Players well, clubbing together to pay for you know flights out to America. So anyway, I flew over to America with the uh, the physiotherapist at the time, and we went in business class. Um, which was, again, a new experience. And for once, you felt like you were appreciated and valued, uh, albeit a flight over to America. I then had major surgery with Eamon Salmon. He was the physio. Then he was a qualified physiotherapist. He he was in at that time. And he spent two days with me. Then he had to fly back. So you, And you were the doctor called Dominic Sisto. So Dominic Sisto, yeah. he was the consultant surgeon who did, who did the... the um, the ACL operation. When I actually saw him and he did some tests on my knee, he basically described my knee as he's seen worse knees that uh, with quarterbacks that have been hit by these these forwards in American football. My knee was basically all over the place, and he said, "I, I still can't understand why you've had two lots of surgery before you've come to see me." Yeah, the quote that sticks out from him from the book to me is, "If I'd seen you straight away, you'd be back playing soccer by now." Well, that's what he believed, and, which is and, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. and when so you that know was the, that was the one where I read that. And yeah, yeah, was, and when you, when you hear that, and you and you, you're lying on a bed, and you, he's told that your knees in a, a terrible state, and he he'd said, "I can't guarantee I'm going to get you back fit, but I'll I'll, I'll make sure that your knees in the, the best you know place possible in terms of your recovery." So, had that had that surgery. And then, as I say, our physio flew back home to um, to Manchester, and I was left to my own devices. So you can imagine you've spent this much money from from um, the um, the insurance to get my knee in a healthy state. I um, was on uh, axilla crutches, so the crutches that go under your arm. So having to walk around on these crutches in a hotel by myself in America, um, so 22 years of age. Never actually been overseas of any great note. So other side of the world, um, as we say in one of the book chapter titles, half a world away. No one to contact, no one to speak with, having to rely on um, porters to um, help me get ice from the ice machines in the corridor back into the, in, into the, um, the hotel room. Managed to get myself down, uh, ordering my own taxi and they're opening the door for me, getting the taxi by myself, making sure I don't catch my leg, swing my leg around, having to hobble in, hobble out by myself for four days, whilst trying to exercise and get it going, in absolute agony getting it going, then having it iced there, then coming back and spending pretty much the whole day by myself, just icing my knee. Again, no one to speak to, no one to turn to, uh, getting room service to get my meals, all of that taking place. Um, and, And yet I was perceived as being the next England captain and, you know, the player that was going to be, you know, City's captain and and all these things spoken of. And in the next breath, just literally left on my own, the other side of the world to to go on with it by myself. And then it culminated where if I got enough of the bending range in my knee, I could could fly back home and carry on my rehabilitation back at Lillishon, not back at the club, and uh, get to the airport. And um, they'd book me in economy class. They'd not um, book the ticket to make sure that I had business class coming back. Um, now, I don't know whether the physiotherapist was back in business class or not, but I get the impression that he flew, certainly in comfort. And I spent the next, at the time, it would have been an eight-hour flight around that time, nine, nine hours even from, from that side, from LA. It was nine hours. Um, trying to sit in economy class after having major surgery, but having to have my leg out in the aisle. And every time someone stood up and every time anyone walked past, I'd have to push my arms up and almost um, sit back into the chair every time someone came back. The quote in the book you 
said was it was folded up like a concertina. Yeah, yeah. And and in absolute agony as well, in so much pain that by the time I got to Manchester, I couldn't walk. And they literally had to get a wheelchair from somewhere to, to, to wheel me off of the plane because I was just... And I, I remember... Um, Joe always shouts because they miss things that I don't. I've not put in the book, but I can remember sweating, almost like you know. You ever, if you ever seen the um, the comedy film Airplane, where the plane's going to crash supposedly, and everyone's getting nervous, and you, one of the pilots is is sweating. There's like you know, uh, there's like a um, the the windscreen wipers on his forehead. Yeah. That's how much I was sweating. I can remember my clothes wringing wet because of the pain. Yeah. You can. That's how bad. I, I, I felt. But to mobilise yourself, you had to keep going to the toilet, didn't you? And you that got was only, a complaint levelled against you. The only you. respite I, I had was going to the toilet. And because I'd had to go there, you think of it, nine-hour flight, trying to get out of the way, my knee was locking because of the swelling. I had to try and keep it moving. So I kept going to the toilet and coming back and going to toilet. But obviously my face was all flushed. It was sweating. It was that. And this older couple had actually made a complaint to... Um, <laughs> to one of the stewardesses saying that they thought I was going there and playing with myself just to add insult to injury as they say you know and they say yeah I wish I was having that much fun it's a sad indictment of where the club was at because other clubs didn't treat players that way other pl- clubs had invested to the, to have qualified people in the right areas to not try and cut corners to actually put the person first and put the football football a second because that's what that's a humane thing to do you know that's the respectful thing to do as someone who's worked all their all their life to try and be part of that and and recognizing the the hard work that has taken place and yeah literally I came back and once the swelling had come down again I was palmed off to Lillishall again you know and I'd spent almost a year of my life at Lillishall and I think, ironically, these things always come back and flash into your mind. And I was, I was, I, in, in fact, this is what it's like. And this is the thing that's so torturous about it is because you, you, you never stop thinking about those things. It may be different days and weeks or whatever, but these things always come back to you. And it took a consultant away from the club who was working with the PFA, who had done ACL surgery, who I, I, I went to see for a second opinion that said, Paul, it's time to call it a day. Yeah. Enough is enough. You're, you're doing, going to do irreparable damage to your knee. And so much so that when I had to retire, I also had to have my right knee straightened because it had also bowed that badly that it wasn't able to control my weight properly and I was getting all kinds of pains. So by the time you retire, you're suffering mentally. You know, you're suffering clinical depression. Now I've read somewhere that after retirement for footballers, the chances of them suffering from that kind of problem goes up by about 40%. But for you, really, Retirement had come earlier in the sense that you hadn't been playing your football, you hadn't been spending your afternoons in, in that usual way. Can you understand why that? Is? There's a big void there, isn't there? Talk me through that. How 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 are you feeling, and 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 what were some of the things you remember from that particularly dark period? Well, I think it's the uh, it's the kind of realization that this is it. You know, it was almost as if it, it was inevitable, but you, you're kind of hoping against hope. And I'd, I'd had all kinds of treatment after that. I was having acupuncture. I'd been in to see a faith healer, which looking back was, was quite comical. But for some people, it, it works. And I'm not knocking them for that. But for me, thinking back, I was just, you know, desperate, hoping for a miracle and, and uh, nothing, you know, coming around the corner for me. And it, it, it's, it's, it's the fact, like you say, it, it's the realisation this is the end. It stops now. And... For lots of footballers, they have a routine in their life. And they've life. known nothing else from such a uh, Exactly. Age. They've known nothing else. That's been their routine. That, that's been that consistency in their life and going for something which they've, they've loved. So not just the adulation of playing in front of thousands of fans, playing for the team that you love, being well paid as well in, in some instances, 
but then it has to come to an end for every single player, no matter who you are. You know, it doesn't last forever. But then you'd not experienced those highs and lows for, for three and a half seasons, which had happened to me then. And then having it to, to completely stop, for my routine to stop, to know that I, I had to stop trying. It was enough. I had to then have major surgery and be on crutches again for six months and, and to, to battle through that, to get myself fit, just to walk around. Um, not having a career to fall back on because in those days it was either or it was either if you're going to try and do college work or education while you're a footballer then you might as well call it quits because you're not you're not um, committed enough yeah. which is a nonsense yeah. but at the time that was the perception so it was okay at school but you know I, this this was my calling that I was having to give up yeah. it wasn't just a livelihood and having to come from that to, to find something else which is going to try in some way, you know, pay for a mortgage, give me some kind of a, uh, a financial support for the, for, the, for the months and years to come. But something that I'd even remotely enjoy doing, but then having to go back to do an access course at, at Manchester College where uh, I was the oldest swinger in town to them, <laughs> yeah. to, and then some, you know, and, and that having, it, was, it wasn't so much that I, it was humiliating but the fact that it, it was like that door slammed shut and I didn't, and I felt embarrassed and nervous and lacking confidence. But you because, had to do this off your own back. There was no, there's no guidance support as to what you do after your career. Yeah, it was just a case of, well, oh, the, the PFA would say, look, if you can get this, this and this, you can get on the, on the Charter Physiotherapy degree course at Salford or do something that way. But that was off your own back and to do that, having to do access courses and, and find that and do an A-level at night school. And, and it was knowing that, that that was what I had to deal with. I had to get myself fit first just to be able to get to college and then going to college whilst I was coming off crutches as well. And, and because of, of the emotional turmoil of all of that, not being able to deal with it, trying to focus on education where it was completely new to me trying to find my way through it uh, and realise that, you know, whenever I turn the light off, I could see Main Road. Whenever I woke up in the morning, I could see myself in the mirror with the kit on and all these flashes that you have all the time. That was, it was really, really tough. And sinking into that mire of depression is something which, you know, I speak to you now and people who have suffered mental health problems and certainly with depression know that you manage it, but you've, you're, at tough times, you, you're close to it and you can taste it and you can smell it. And that's how I interpret it. And sometimes, even recently, where you have some bad days, you, know, you, you feel those emotions. You're able, you're able to find a way to manage those emotions. But at that time, I had no one to speak with, no one to turn to, and I just plummeted. And it, it got to the stage where I couldn't even venture out of the house. Yeah. You know, I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd even speak to my family on the phone and, and sound everything's okay. How are you? And yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And just the effort to speak like that for five minutes would be absolutely exhausting. But even whilst I was retiring, but I wasn't quite retired, I'd have to go to the club and show my face mm -hmm. and smile and say hi to the fans. And, you know, that was absolutely demoralising. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was, it was torturous. And, and, and I'd get home from, the, from a game and literally fall on the bed with my, kit, with my suit on you know, it was the same suit that I wore for about four years, but I changed the ties <laughs> now and again, you. <laughs> you know, and literally fall asleep and wake up the following morning, absolutely miserable. And just, you know, it, it might as well have been in bed on the top floor, but felt like I was on, I was, you know, in the hall downstairs, you know, on the, on the, on the ground floor, because that's literally how I felt pretty much all the time. And nothing or no one could get me out of that. 
I used to go for walks in, you know, at, at late at night in the morning by myself. You know, you'd have my next door neighbours hearing the door go and checking out, you know, but go for a walk at, say, midnight. But you go shopping, you like fill your car up and you go to the cinema at night just to avoid conversations. Yeah, the cinema thing did stick out to me. Mm-hmm. You'd be kind of yeah, just love going to the cinema because he, the lights would go out. Yeah, no and one... just two hours of just, I'm not having to deal with anybody. Exactly. And, and, and a way to escape, a way to escape. Um, and, and that was hugely important. You know, trying to put on an act to go to a game and, and to speak to fans and to try and watch a game and watch a team that was they were wearing your number, wearing your shirt. But to even to be asked to do that. And even back. to do presentations at half time and during the week to go to do a lottery draw or whatever where they'd rather see a first team player who's played, not this guy hasn't played for three years. And even City fans saying, Dad, who's that again? And you hearing these comments and... and it's not the kid's fault. He probably hasn't seen me for three seasons. If it's his first season as a City fan, you know, of that age, he's not going to know who I am. You know, even being being mistaken for David White, you know, and having to... I even signed his name, you know, as an autographer was that dispirited at the time. And and thinking back to the, that, the grit and resilience I've had to formulate, you know, almost by default really because I've had to experience that and, and try and deal with it and come out the other side with a modicum of, of respect... And, and self pride, and and that that would that would go as well because, you know, you're trying to speak about the game as a as a city fan, never mind as an ex player, but never been made to feel like that. Always been made to feel worthless and not valued, and and all these things you internalise because I had nowhere to go. So I'd go for walks. I'd go. To, I'd actually go to a place um, to go and get a bite to eat. Say two in the morning, a pizza place. I used to count the steps there and count the steps back. You know, and that, that would be my routine. We'd we'll start to count, you know, and it would be bizarre, really. That I, I even speaking about it to you, looking at you, and, and Joe's in the room <laughs> and thinking, I don't recognise that person at all. It, it's frightening to know the things that I did. And, you know, as I say, it, it culminated this one night where I'd gone for a walk, two or three in the morning, uh, on a bridge, looking over the motorway, uh, not far from the, the galley in the Cheadle, in, in Cheadle, or Cheadle going towards Disbury. And just stood there, and it's ridiculous, two, three in the morning, just, just watching lights come and go and wishing to be anywhere or imagining where that person was going, if it was a truck driver, where he was driving to, just anything to think about something else rather than think about me and where I was at. And seeing a, a, a police car go past and then not even recognising it really or taking it in, then looking up 10 minutes later and seeing two police guys walking towards me, I had my hood up, you know, either side of me saying, are you okay, sir, is everything all right? And then realizing what they thought I was contemplating, yeah. you know, and and that again was the realization that I need to sort my life out. I need to do something. Football is better equipped now. Oh, absolutely! I mean, you look back at that time. I mean, you're talking at a, t- a time where you know Stan Collymore had issues with depression. You've got his manager John Gregory, wasn't it? Saying, "Well, what's he got to be depressed about?" I mean, that was that era. And it's no, no, any more or less difficult from a guy that's that, that that's working out on the roads, doing doing shifts, doing whatever job. But any woman doing what she has to do, you know, it's just part of your your job. But it's still tough because the emotional side and the psychological ramifications of that. The fact that you're going to have to go back and step out there and are you going to be the same person? And there is that fear because you venture into the unknown. You just don't know how you're going to deal with that, how you're going to cope with that. And yes, you've got the support. Yes, you've got a network of, of information which is going to get you to that to that place where you can then have a platform to spring from. And you're going to have dips and you're going to have low moments and this is who you can speak with and you can be open, you can be honest. All of that is what I didn't have. And so much reflection time 
too much reflection time. You imagine having a, a knee which you don't know if it's going to be able to cope with the next stage of your rehabilitation. And that, that, that pressure, that stress that you internalize is, is absolutely huge. And if, if you don't manage it in the right way and you internalize it, there's only one thing it's going to do. It's going to affect your, your mental health. You're not going to be able to cope. And that might spill out in a different way. And it may be that people turn to drink, people turn to gambling, uh, people are, are, are violent. It's only because they've not been given that support network to find a way to deal with that, to get them back on track. And, and some of the, the strongest people that I've met have suffered with depression and are still managing sport or managing politics or managing life, managing a job, having a family, having children that have got serious illness and having their own mental health issues and managing that. These, that's strength. And they speak about it. And they're still having to deal with those day, that those those situations the following day, the following week, the following month, you know. So, you know, that's it has changed a lot, and it, and it's it's taken yes, lots of high profile people, men and women, speaking about their mental health issues to make that that it's norm. But it's not it's not soft soap, and it's not a weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. That, in my opinion, that you're able to speak with that and hold your head up high. Do you think there's more football can do that? I mean. I know in Germany, Robert en- the, the death of Robert Enke led to big changes in the way that depression is viewed uh, and dealt with in German football. The actual support network from um, the Premier League, the Football League, uh, League Managers Association all working together with great support from uh, the PFA, Sporting Chance. There's other charities like If You Care Share. There's lots of support that's out there. There's a 24-hour hotline from the PFA that's seven days a week with counsellors available on hand within 48 hours' notice. Um, the, the problem that you've got is if, if it's not, not tackled as a football club from the top down, from the chairman, from the CEO speaking about it and recognising the importance of it, then then that will always be a problem. It's still spoken of and it's still supported in the right way. And lots of high profile people have gone above and beyond the call of duty to make sure that it's, it's, it's recognised and it resonates with people. And until you're in that situation, you don't necessarily know that you need it. And it can be anything from someone being a, a bit low to that developing into, into something more serious and recognising the, the signs and the stages and having key people in the environments. Academies now in the Premier League and Football League deal with it very, very well. And clubs do acknowledge it. It's not soft-soaping. It's, it's not, you know, just pandering to people. Yeah. You know, because when people use that expression, and I've heard people that come from, you know, really macho environments, and it's their upbringing too, you know, sort of like nine-tenths of what, of what they consciously you know, perceived to be the right things is from their subconscious, their own life experiences to that point. But we know that stage one of, of someone being low can be that someone has um, a low mood that that, that, that might develop into a, um, a mild depression to more severe depression, but then someone takes their own life and that's an illness. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't, it isn't hugely important. And you say that again, people can take their own lives, can commit suicide, with mental health problems. Gary Speed, of course. Exactly. So what we know there is, is just that very fact that that's how serious it can be. So if, you'd be, if you're flippant about it and you take it lightly, then you are going to alienate individuals who are, are suffering with problems, who will recognise that behaviour, not speak about it, internalise that, and then struggle along with it. And these are the same players that four, five, six, seven years down the line may end up taking their own lives. So the book, what made you... <laughs> decide to do this Joe? well um obviously having followed paul's career myself as a fan i knew he had this wonderful story to tell 
Um, but we got married, we had a couple of kids, and I remember it was, we were on holiday in Northumberland, weren't we? Aye, we were. We were, aye. And we were sat outside this little lodge on the veranda, and Paul was reminiscing, and just talking about the good times, the bad times, glass of wine. And I remember saying to him, you know what, you've got a book in you, you absolutely have a book in you. Um, but who's going to kind of tell it? Who's going to write it? And I'd done a bit of writing in the past, but it was more kind of feature-based, article-based, <coughs> interview-based within sport. Never written a book before in my life. But I said to Paul, you know what, let's give it a go. Yeah. Let's, when we get back from holiday, let's get back to just and let's give it a go. We'd also fell into the time where I'd, I'd been to a few supporters clubs as well and, and uh, there was one, one night at a supporters club, you know, a, a fan had a bit of a go at me saying that I'd let, I'd let the team down because I'd not got myself fit and had I worked hard enough, how, how committed was I? And I'd kind of challenged that. So having these conversations and then hearing that from a blue was just, it just knocked me for six and I was reading from it. And so I was yeah, so... there was, there was, I mean, he had the story to tell, but there was an element of Paul setting the record straight, I think. He had, yeah, you had had enough of being asked the same question over and over again. And writing a book was the chance to kind of get things down in writing, yeah. in his own words, with full control. So we got back to Manchester and I said, okay, well, let's give it a go. If it doesn't work out, obviously we're husband and wife, you know, I've got to kind of take a step back here and try and be objective and as professional as I can but I'll give it my best shot. And if you don't like what we're writing, what we produce, well, that's fine. I'm sure another journalist would love to write your story. It's so unique. Um, so we, we started. And I'd sit on one city, and he'd sit on the other. And Paul would... I'd ask the right questions, and Paul would talk and talk and talk. I'd tape all the conversations, and then... Weave your magic. We, yeah, and I'd kind of sit up till 2, 3 in the morning, some of a night elf, and insomnia, I can write it all up. Um, and we got to about chapter 3... And I think we both realised we were onto something. Yeah. It was just clicking. It just, I just, I'd, I'd read, you know, I'd read a lot of books in, uh, to research, you know, memoirs and autobiographies, that kind of thing. And I suppose I took Tony, we mentioned Tony Cascarino before. I think I probably took his book as a bit of a benchmark. This is a good example of a football book that isn't rubbish. Well, exactly. Well, and it was just so honest and so different yeah. and just so from the heart. And I thought that's, I mean, it's a completely different story, but that's the kind of, tone I want to set Um, and we got to about chapter three and we thought yeah we think we're onto some we had lots of we had about two or three friends that kind of edited the chapters for us and read through the chapters for us and they kind of gave us positive feedback Um, one of which was Kevin Cummins the photographer yeah yeah who um, read those initial chapters and said you know he really enjoyed it and said look I've got a literary agent friend of mine would you mind if I pass chapters on to him we said no not at all I mean at the time, we just thought our, our, our motivation was to get Paul's story down in print. Now, whether that was for family or friends to read, whether that was a kind of local project that a Manchester publisher would take up, well, that's great. In no way did we think we were going to get a book deal from Never. some big cheese publisher. Yeah, we didn't yeah. at all. So so um, the literary agent passed, passed the manuscript that we worked on up until then to publishers and we had within about two weeks we had about four or five publishers vying for the book yeah. and we were, ju- we were just absolutely bamboozled weren't we we're like my god this yeah. little book because I mean Paul within Manchester obviously people know Paul but out of Manchester he's not a household name no. but that's the interesting thing about the book isn't it it almost transcended it certainly transcended city circles in the end. Yeah. But it almost transcended football, didn't it? Because well, it was that's, such a You know what, that's story. so interesting, Rob, because that is so what we wanted. We, we, it's framed by football, we knew that. 
but it wasn't just football. It was about, we're both huge, committed, proud Mancunians. Yeah. And Manchester kind of ran through the book like a thread. We, yeah. you know, we are mm. Manchester, whether it's the music, the clubbing, the whole, you know, your family, you know, every, every, mm. everything about Manchester, you know, was kind of encapsulated in that book. So that, that played a big part. But no, it was, it was so much more than football and that's how, how we wanted it. And I think that's what appealed to the publishers. It wasn't just a kind of chronological, played this, played that, did this, did that. It was, it was different. Did you find the process, I mean, it's interesting, that process you've explained sounds like um, a journalist would do a book with somebody they didn't know. So it's actually really interesting that you would sit down and do tapes recording oh, interviews and things like that. I had to like approach that. it. I knew that if it was going to work, I had to approach it objectively, professionally. Yeah. So each night I'd say, right, sit down two hours you know you're gonna you know this is what we're talking about and Paul would talk um but th- there were times where you know I'm his wife and he is Paul is having to kind of extract memories and situations that he's tried to compartmentalize yeah. and put to the back of his mind for years yet for the purposes of the book he knows that if we're going to do this properly it needs to be, you needs know, to be in there. yeah it needs yeah. to be in there so there were there was you know talking about his father who he adored who passed away and was hard and and for me um I've been when we started the book we'd been married for 10 years hadn't we Mm -hmm. and I knew that Paul had had low points I knew he'd been depressed but not until we wrote the book did I realize the depths of that and that was so hard for me and for him you know this is the person that I love who's I'm going to get emotional now yeah but I mean even even to the extent of that we were just talking about it and and um the fact that we're able to to, to sort of bring a different elements to the book, which which hadn't really been done before, and and even the the uh, the, the chapter titles, uh, we were able to. It was quite. I, I, that's one of my favourite parts. Oh, I thought that seems great. You know, I absolutely love that, and the, and the fact that you know it actually underpins what what the chapters. And we were so meticulous about that because it wasn't yeah. just it wasn't just random. I mean, you know, the chapter title named after Manchester songs. It wasn't no, just a random. There's a meaning it to it. Exactly. It had to apply to the chapter. Yeah, that, yeah. So we kind of, we 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 agonised over those chapters. Yeah, because there were so many back, bands that we love and so many songs that we love. It was so difficult to do, but we it had to it had to resonate and, and had to and 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 what again? One of I mean, Joe won't won't say this, but the one thing that I recognise after after we went through the the, the three chapters that, that we did before it, it was passed on to the publishers was the fact that. That Joe's able to paint such pictures, mm. and there's a real talent in that. The fact that you know the way that she she wrote it and the language used, it just flowed. Oh, absolutely, it was, beautifully yeah, written, and yeah. that's that's why there's been you know it was so successful. Was it cathartic for you? The process of doing this was it? It it was it was for different reasons, and 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 uh, I mean it was difficult in terms of speaking, say speaking about those dark times, speaking about my father, uh, and and having to really. Uh, Shine a, well, shine a torch on yourself, hold a mirror up to yourself, as they say, and, and to really look at, at what I'd experienced and, and what that felt like. And I had to go into forensic, sorry to interrupt, had to go into forensic detail. And he'd be like, why are you asking me this? Why are you asking me what colour the bloody car was? And it's like, you need to. To paint yeah. those pictures, you need that, that level that, of detail. And that was something so I recognised. So it was recognized. difficult for you. So yeah, you'd it was. be like, bloody hell, you know. Yeah, yeah, give it a rest for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, yeah, it was, was a blue what's car. What's the cat's name? Yeah, it was a blue car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a red car? Never had a red car. No. Why? Why do you think? You know, but it, it, it was but it was, it was, was interesting as well because not only had had I um, had not thought about these things, but they were they were there. You know, it was, you know, it's... When, some, when, when something's as difficult as it is, 
uh, and you've experienced it and you've experienced it and it's become, I said to you, I used the expression Groundhog Day and it was literally that. You know, it's it's almost imprinted on my mind. So everything that we spoke of, but it was actually how to deal with that afterwards yeah. and, and those things would stay with you. And, and that was really, really tough. There, there were so many times where Paul would get really upset. And when you're, you know, you're sat opposite somebody who's sobbing, it, it's so difficult. And there, was, there were occasions where I said, look, let's stop. Yeah. And yeah. You, you wouldn't. You were like, no, I need to get this out. I need to get this off my chest. I need to talk about this. Because if I don't now, yeah. I probably never will. And again, that was another way of being able to, to sort of deal with it. And, and, and... The great thing was, is because it's not a misery memoir. What we we found is that there's some, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of fun. I mean, there's, there's chapters that we couldn't put in there. We did a you know a lot more than we actually we had to cut it down, as as you can appreciate. Yeah. But the, some of the fun times and the things that we have a laugh about, you know, uh, would really lift it and would really make it. And we enjoyable. were so we were so I was so insistent about that. You know, Paul, you know, he's a raconteur. He's he's a funny guy. And yes, there were lots of dark moments in the book, of course. But there was lots to kind of lighten it, lots of levity there as well. Yeah. Um, and lots so, of proud moments as well, you know, and, and never losing sight of the fact, you know, I mean, even though the front cover of the of the hardback is the picture that I've taken myself out of, and that idea of the jigsaw piece was something which, which uh, I had in one of those moments where I think that, that would work really, really well. But at the same time, being so proud uh, of what I had achieved, and that's something that I wanted to really get, get through there because, you know, there was never that kind of uh, resentment of, of 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 the club and the people around it because I'd still played 130 times for the team that I loved. I was still made captain. I still had those experiences. So, I mean, obviously you were surprised by the success of it. Yeah, massively. Sure. Because, I mean, if you didn't think he was going to get taken on by oh, a publisher. Oh, massively. And it becomes a Sunday Times bestseller. Sunday Times bestseller. And I think it was reviewed by every single paper other than The Sun. Gutted. Yeah. Um, including things like the Jewish Chronicle uh, reviewed it. The review that really got the ball rolling was Daniel Taylor's The Guardian. Mm. I think his was the first review that came out um, and it was, yeah, reviewed all over the place and you did broadcast media and world service and all sorts. Sky Sports, everything. We were in a total world. We were just Mm. completely wrong-footed by it all, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, Exciting as well. delighted, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and so so proud of what we'd achieved, you know, working together and and, uh, as Team Lakey. And it, 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 you know, it was, it was a really fun time and, and uh, I mean I think that the, the, the sort of beauty of it is the, the dynamic you two have got you know su- such a close relationship working on this but every other football book or not every other but most football books are very cliche aren't they in terms of its huge success and the last yeah. page is probably scoring the winning goal at Wembley. This was that, a complete. It was a different trajectory. It's a completely different trajectory, and that's you know why we knew that Paul's book would probably be so unique. You know, yeah. I don't, no other player had gone through, had reached those heights that Paul had reached, and then suddenly, you know, all that that promise being taken away through no fault of his own. Yeah. So we knew he had a really compelling tale to tell. Again, that process of, of piecing the chapters together, doing it in the right way and, and again getting that nice balance of, of, of yes there's a football element there has to be you know, the feelings the emotions the, 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 the humour the happy times the dark times the different life experiences and even working as a physiotherapist at, at Burnley and, uh, and Maxfield Town we thought that would really struggle I to... thought I was going to really struggle those chapters and I did I was worried about those chapters but when we submitted them to the publisher the editor said they were among his favourite chapters right. yeah. because it was just another insight into 
Again, yeah. painting pictures. Well, the flow of it, it does flow. You were right to say that at the beginning. It's like an album, you know, of, of music, the, the order of the songs. Oh, I like it's, that, Rob. Keep, keep talking, keep talking. That is sometimes critical, isn't it? Because art, you know, you, you need to make it, um, you need to make it a complete piece and work from start to finish. And I think the book really does that. Oh, thank you. Just, the, the, just a, one on a lighter note to end. Yeah. Um, I have to ask about that strange anecdote from 1989, where at half time, um, Eddie Large comes in and delivers what sounds like a, a bizarre team talk. City three 0 up. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. City three 0 up and on the brink of promotion. Yeah, cruising, absolutely coasting at half time. I'm presuming Mel Machen thinks this is a good idea, does he? Well, the manager he, at the time. He, he did. It was kind of light-hearted. It was almost like, well, the lads are confident, the lads are, are buzzing, and you'd think that you know you wouldn't lose any focus just because someone come in the changing rooms and said hi to the guys, but you know he was coming around to each individuals and he was doing his impersonations. Now, the people that don't know uh, who who he is... Come on, are, are, it's a new Eddie Lodges. Yeah, and, and know of his, who, the impersonations that he does, but he has a repertoire, which obviously is in is, is dated to the 1970s and 80s, <laughs> but we recognised who, who he was doing the impersonations of, but he was talking to ex-player using this particular funny voice and saying something that was quite witty and amusing and apt at that moment, then go to the next player and using a different voice. And, and it, was, it, was, it was quite funny, but it kind of uh, had the... Um, the, the complete opposite effect than it was. It was intended. It was intended just to let everyone chill out, to realise that we're it's, we're almost over the line. You know, there's the three nil up. You know, you, you're not you're not going to blow it from here. There's no there's no problems. You know, it's as good as done. So even when we went uh, we went down to three one, we thought now we're going to be okay. But the last ten minutes must have been awful for the city fans <laughs> because we just capitulated. And, and sadly, it was my my teammate who I'd known for a long time, Andy, Andy Hinchcliffe, who had a a bit of a a, a torrid game. And, and he was a fantastic player. And you know, went to play for England. And, and it was Ian know, Bishop that ran Ringfield. And it was it was Ian Bishop. It was Luther Blissett at the time. He was coming towards the end of his career, and he just uh, you know ran as ragged, believe it or not, and scored two goals in the last ten minutes to draw three three. But it was unbelievable at half time that that was allowed to happen. That was the professionalism at the time. I'm not knocking my mates in for that. He just thought it was it was appropriate because it was it was signed, sealed and delivered, you know? The the league title's yours, as Steve Wonder once sang about, but it did it wasn't the case and we had to then go to Bradford City to try and eke out a draw to to get promotion. So it was uh, Unbelievable. You look back at the things that are taking place at Manchester City and, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the, at times a lack of professionalism, um, the uh, the kind of almost like um, buy your fingernails, last minute, last last ditch preparation. You know, it was it was it wouldn't say it was it was unprofessional at times. It, it really was. But, you know, like anything, you just get on with it, you deal with it as, as you do and you, you try and do, do the best that you can in that situation. But um, you don't lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of t- lot of players in in that team that, that love City anyway as fans, never mind as players, that respected the fans, knew how much it meant to them and how meant it how much it meant to us. And and that's my one of my abiding memories of the book is the fact that we've got a quote from Noel Gallagher, who when he, he spoke about me said it was like having one of your mates on the pitch. You know, and that that's, a great that's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I just want to say a big thank you to Paul and Joanne for allowing me around to their house, but also for talking so openly and honestly about some pretty difficult topics. I think it made for a very interesting conversation, so thank you so much. If you like what you heard today, please do make sure you subscribe wherever it is you do your podcast listening. We've got plenty more of these for you as well. I've been speaking to Andy Morrison and Joe Royal, 
who were the architects of our back-to-back -back promotion seasons in 99 and 2000. Dennis Stewart, the man who scored the greatest ever goal in a League Cup final and then ended up on the board of directors during a pretty turbulent period for City. Francis Lee, who was widely regarded as one of the greatest ever players we've had and then was subsequently our chairman. And Brian Marwood, a man who's played a key role in the club's development since the takeover in 2008. They're all available now, wherever it is you're listening. And you can find more of my work and my colleagues' work in the Man City media team over on mancity.com or download the official Man City app for all the latest news and videos. Thanks for taking the time to listen and hopefully you'll join me soon.